Well, when I was at school, um, one of my favourite subjects was English, English literature. I loved reading plays and novels. I always enjoyed stories. And I thought I'd just be moved by them, I'd be excited by them, and I thought that's what English is all about. When it came to poetry, I was always left a bit cold by it. The poems we looked at in school always seemed very far removed from reality. So poetry felt a bit dry as I read it. And then when I was 17, um, at school, my teacher introduced me to the poems of a guy called Philip Larkin. He's a very good-looking man. Um, and, and I loved his poems, actually. I felt I could understand this guy's poems. They were sometimes a little bit rude, which was always good for a teenage boy. Um, they could be funny. But above all, I loved them because I thought they were honest and they were truthful poems. Now, the point thing was, Philip Larkin was an atheist. And I was already a Christian by the time... I first read his stuff, so I disagreed with him on the fundamental questions of whether or not God existed and whether or not there was a meaning to life after all. But when I read his poetry, I always had the feeling that he was trying to tell the truth, that he was trying to make sense of his own life and the world that we all live in. And I often ended up agreeing with this atheist poet, at least in part with what he was saying. And one of my favourite Larkin poems is called Faith Healing. And in it, he explores the desire many people have to believe in something. And he actually makes fun of that desire in much of the poem. But then he writes the following lines. And these are lines I've always remembered. He says, In everyone there sleeps a sense of life lived according to love. To some it means the difference they could make by loving others, but across most it sweeps as all they might have done had they been loved. That nothing cures. These are really evocative lines to me. And the more I meet people and listen to people, the more I watch movies, listen to music, read books, the more I'm convinced that Larkin's actually right here. Most of us do long for the knowledge that we are loved. Because we know that somehow, if we just knew that we were loved, then that would free us up to live lives that matter. Now, a sense of not being loved clearly does damage people. Children, for instance, who are denied love by their parents grow up as adults with anxieties and struggles they would not otherwise have had. And some of the most antisocial teenagers that I meet, um, if you get the opportunity to chat to them about family life, you discover that they're just not loved or noticed at home. So most of their antisocial behaviour is a desperate attempt to get attention and love from loveless parents. And then when adults experience deep feelings of loneliness, often that flows out of a longing to be loved by someone. But either they don't find that person to love them, or when they do, that person just cannot satisfy every bit of that longing to be loved. It's just not enough for them. See, Philip Larkin argues that most people attribute their failures and fears in life to not having experienced enough love. And, and to be honest, he gently mocks that in his poem. Larkin argues we need to grow up beyond that. We need to mature beyond that. We need to accept that there is no way of satisfying that longing for love. We need to make do with the harsh realities of life and just get on with it. And as I said earlier, I often do find myself agreeing with Philip Larkin. And there are parts of his thinking on this question, on this longing for love in all of us, that I agree with too. 
I mean, this longing for love can easily become self-indulgent and it's often deeply self-centered. A man and a woman wants to be loved but has no desire to put in the time or make the sacrifices involved to love someone else. So the loved one becomes just an object to show me love, not someone that I show love to. Whether it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend, a husband or a wife, whether it's my parents or my children, they only exist in my mind to give me love. And that is deeply self-indulgent and harmful. So in that I think Larkin is right when he mocks this longing. But I also think that the human longing for love is a good thing. Not just an illusion or an expression of selfishness on our part. And it's a good thing when it leads us to the one person truly worth loving in this world. And that person is the living God. The God and Father of Jesus Christ. See, we all long to be loved and to love others because basically we're made in the image of God. God made us that way. And ultimately, that longing to be loved and to love others can only be satisfied in a relationship with Him. Augustine put it like this in a prayer to God. He said, You made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. See, it is God who has given us this longing for love. And it is only God who can satisfy that. And one of the great tragedies of human nature is that our sinful nature desperately tries to convince us that other things and other people can satisfy that longing for love. So, just one more relationship and then I'll be happy. That'll be the one. If I just get married, then I'll be satisfied. If my children only knew how much I loved them and gave up for them, then I could rest easy. If my friends only respected me more, then I'd be content. You see, none of those things really will satisfy us in the end. We are created for a relationship with the living God through his son Jesus. And only then will our longings be satisfied. In part in this life, only in part in this life, but fully and completely in the future hope that God calls us to. So what's all this got to do with the book of Ruth? Well, we're spending a few weeks looking at this Old Testament book because even though it is a small book with seemingly small events happening, it has wonderful things to tell us about God's love for his people. See, the book of Ruth tells us that God's love for his people is a lavish love. It's a love that cannot be earned and it's a love that satisfies us. And through the story of Ruth and Boaz, Ruth chapter 2 that we're looking at this morning paints, I think, an amazing picture of God's love for us to meditate on. And it's absolutely fundamental to any Christian's growth that we learn more about God's love, that we delight in it, that we praise God for it, because only when we realise how much God loves us will we be willing to make the sacrifices necessary and the difficult choices necessary to live faithful lives for him. And the book of Ruth, I want to say, is a great help to us in understanding something of God's love for his people. Now we've called this series on Ruth God's love story, but we saw last week, if you were here in chapter 1, this love story has a pretty bleak beginning. A woman from Bethlehem named Naomi moves away from home to the land of Moab with her family. And over the space of about 10 years, she loses everything. Her husband, her two sons, 
and her belief that the God of Israel is good. So Naomi returns home in chapter 1, disappointed with God. She also returns home with a Moabite's daughter-in-law called Ruth. And we saw last week that Ruth shows amazing love and devotion to Naomi in chapter 1. And that she has declared that from now on, Naomi's God will be Ruth's God. And this week we see what happened next. We're going to see God's hand at work in providing for and blessing Naomi and Ruth. And in Boaz, we get a striking picture of God's great love and grace. And it's my prayer that spending this time together meditating on God's love will actually lead us not only to praise God more, but to be able to trust him more. Because he is a loving God. He is a gracious God. And that knowledge can transform our relationship with him and the lives we try and live for him. So, turn to Ruth chapter 2 then. And the sense of portrayal of God's love in this chapter is again through this man called Boaz. We'll just read verse 1 for us. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Now Boaz, the Bible name that hasn't really cottoned on. People aren't really calling their babies Boaz, but he's a great character in this book. See, the writer of Ruth has kept Boaz's existence quiet up till now, but immediately we're told here that Boaz is related to Elimelech, Naomi's husband. So suddenly the writer says, this guy is important. This man has a part to play in the story of Naomi and Ruth. So who is this Boaz? Well, first of all, we learn he is a man of standing in verse 1. Again, last week we saw chapter 1 of Ruth is dominated by two women, Naomi and Ruth. And the men we've heard about so far, Elimelech and his two sons, just haven't been terribly impressive. Basically, they're dead before we get the chance to meet them. But here, in chapter 2, we finally meet a man of standing. And this phrase means that he's wealthy, he's influential, he's a lot more impressive than the men of chapter 1. See, might this man be able to help these two widows in Bethlehem? Well, in verse 2, Ruth volunteers to go to the fields where the body was being harvested to see if she could bring home any leftover grain for herself and Naomi. See, as two widows without any close relations, Ruth and Naomi were extremely vulnerable and they faced an uncertain future. Naomi appears to have been too old to go to work and as a Moabitess, Ruth would have been regarded with suspicion and even hostility by the people of Bethlehem. See, it was highly likely that Naomi and Ruth could starve in Bethlehem in spite of the harvest. But Ruth doesn't want that to happen. She takes it on herself to care for Naomi and to provide for the two of them. She's already made that costly decision to stay with Naomi and entrust her life to Naomi's God and she intends to stick to that decision. So, with Naomi's permission, Ruth heads to the harvest field where verse 3 picks up the story. Verse 3. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now that's a phrase we're going to meet a few times in the book of Ruth. As it turned out, Ruth ended up in Boaz's field. See, the writer of Ruth wants to see that this actually is no coincidence. 
God is at work here. Again, in verse 3, we hear that Boaz is related to Naomi's dead husband. See, God is bringing Ruth into contact with Boaz here. For what reason, we don't yet know. But all through the book of Ruth, things like this just happen. Coincidences take place. See, God is at work in this story. And we finally get to meet Boaz in verse 4. And his first words are significant in understanding him. Verse 4. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. See, when you meet Boaz, he is portrayed as a man who trusts in the Lord, in the God of Israel. See, Boaz here is a godly man. Both here and in verse 12, Boaz mentions the Lord. It is clear that Boaz knows the Lord. In verse 4, he greets his workers in the name of the Lord. And remember, there's been a famine for about 10 years. So the fact that the barley harvest is happening at all is a really big deal in Bethlehem. And Boaz recognizes God's hand at work in that. He praises God for the harvest. And he asks God to bless his workers in the harvest. And if you were here last week, you remember that the book of Ruth is set in the time of the judges in Israel's history. And that was a violent and godless and faithless time in Israel's history. When Israel repeatedly forgot about God and went their own way. But the writer of Ruth shows us that Boaz is different. Boaz remembers the Lord in a godless age. He is a faithful man. See, this man, again, the writer's telling us, is promising. Who knows how God might use a man like this? Then in verse 5, Boaz notices Ruth at work in the field, and his foreman explains to him who Ruth is. And it seems that Ruth's arrival in Bethlehem hasn't gone unnoticed. People have heard about her, and her request to work in Boaz's field has a big impact on Boaz. He introduces himself to Ruth in verse 8, and Boaz and Ruth's conversation tells us a great deal about the two of them. Just read verse 8 for us. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. See, in this verse, And the following verses, Boaz reveals himself to be a man of generosity. And more than that, a man of lavish generosity. See, Boaz's address to Ruth, my daughter, suggests he's quite a bit older than Ruth is. And he proceeds to show her some remarkable kindness here. See, the Old Testament law commanded that when an Israelite farmer was harvesting a field and he discovered that some sheaves of barley or wheat had been overlooked, he was to leave them behind for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. That's Deuteronomy 24. And Ruth was all three of those things in Bethlehem. And she'd gone to the field of Boaz in the hope that she might get some of this leftover grain for herself and Naomi. And doubtless, as with the rest of the law, there were some farmers who obeyed this command and some farmers who didn't. But Ruth discovers here that Boaz not only obeyed the law, he went far beyond it and his kindness towards her. In verses 8 to 9, Boaz offers Ruth his protection. Again, a woman on her own was vulnerable 
in the time of the judges, let alone a widow, let alone a foreign widow. The people of Moab were frequently the enemies of Israel. And you could just imagine that Ruth could have provoked a lot of prejudice and even abuse from other people in Bethlehem, from other Jewish widows who wanted this leftover grain. See, Ruth is in a dangerous position here. But in recognition of that, Boaz tells Ruth to stay in his field and work alongside his servant girls. Boaz himself instructs his men not to touch Ruth. She will be safe with him. And more than that, he says, whenever she's thirsty, she can drink from the same water that his workers drink from. See, Boaz was under no obligation from the law to treat Ruth as one of his own workers, but he gives her the same rights, the same privileges, and the same protection that they have. And then in verse 14, Boaz does something even more remarkable. Verse 14, At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. See, Boaz invites Ruth to eat with him. Ruth sits down with the harvesters. She is now included in the community of Boaz's workers. She's no longer treated as an outsider here. Boaz welcomes her into his company. And again, Boaz had no obligation to do that. This is an act of great kindness and generosity on behalf of Boaz. And then the second half of verse 14, Boaz, this wealthy landowner, this man who owns the field they're working in and all the wheat and barley in it, chooses to serve Ruth a meal. Verse 14, the end of it. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. See, Boaz chooses to serve Ruth. The landowner serves the foreign widow. And you can imagine Boaz's workers would have gasped at that. What's the boss playing at? Doesn't he know who this woman is? And then in verses 15 and 16, after Ruth has eaten all she wanted and even had some left over, Boaz gives new orders to his men. Verse 15, he says, Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. See again, Boaz, he's not content with giving Ruth freedom to glean in his field. He's not content with feeding Ruth and even serving her food. Boaz commands his men to deliberately and purposely leave stalks for Ruth to pick up. Boaz wants Ruth to take away as much of his barley as possible. So he uses his influence as a farmer to make sure that she does. Boaz's generosity towards Ruth is unexpected and it is lavish. And Ruth knows it. She's amazed by Boaz's kindness here. And she is humbled by it. She knows She's the recipient of great kindness and that she does not deserve that. Verse 10. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And Boaz's reply in verse 11 and 12 urges Ruth to see his kindness as coming from the God of Israel, the God in whom she has put her trust. Verse 11. I've been told all about what you've done 
for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, verse 12 is the key to what is happening in Ruth chapter 2. See, in chapter 1, Ruth chose to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. And now the God of Israel is providing for her. Behind all of Boaz's lavish generosity, it's the Lord who is working to bless Ruth. See, in chapter 1, Ruth may only have been dimly aware of who the Lord is. She almost certainly didn't know everything about him or fully understand what it meant to trust in him. But when she did put her trust in him, God recognized that. And he blessed that choice. Through Boaz's kindness, through Boaz's attention and care, Ruth is encountering something of the Lord's compassion, the Lord's goodness, the Lord's love. Boaz's generosity is transforming Ruth's life in Bethlehem here. And not just Ruth's life, but Naomi's life as well. In verse 18, Ruth heads home to Naomi after her first day of gleaning barley and Naomi is amazed to see that her daughter-in-law has so much with her. And Ephtha, in verse 17, was the equivalent of about a half a month's wages and Ruth had collected that much in one day. And more than that, Ruth also brings home with her the food left over from her meal with Boaz. And we don't know the last time Naomi had eaten anything, but we do know that she is amazed at this. Amazed at what her daughter-in-law has brought home with her. Verse 19. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. See, last week we saw that Naomi was deeply disappointed with God. She blamed God for the death of her husband and her two sons. But here, through the generosity of Boaz, she begins to see God in a different light. Verse 20. The Lord bless him, Naomi said. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Naomi recognizes that through Boaz, the God of Israel is showing her great kindness. More than that, the Lord is showing her amazing grace. So we saw last week that at least part of Naomi's sufferings in chapter 1 was the result of her own sin, of her foolish decision to put her trust in Moab rather than in God. But here, the Lord is providing for her. In spite of Naomi's anger with God, in spite of her bitterness directed at God, God is gracious to her. He is showing himself to be a forgiving and a loving God. In verse 20, Naomi tells Ruth that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. And we're going to see next week just what that means for these two widows. But already in this chapter, we can see that Boaz's kindness and generosity towards Ruth has begun to transform the lives of Ruth and Naomi. And I hope we can also see that the writer of Ruth wants us to see Boaz's kindness as a picture of God's love for his people. This is not just a lovely story, though it is a lovely story. It has precious things to say to us about the God in whom we trust. 
See, to the original Jewish readers of Ruth, Boaz was a picture of God's grace towards Israel. See, throughout the Old Testament, Israel repeatedly forgot God and forgot God's grace towards them. The time of the judges, when the book of Ruth is set, is a prime example of that. Israel kept on forgetting God. They forgot the only reason they were God's people was because of God's grace in choosing them to be his people. The only reason Israel existed was because God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and brought them into this land and made them his people. See, like Naomi, Israel kept on walking away from God and then blaming God for the troubles they faced as a result. And yet, throughout Israel's history, God was amazingly gracious to them. He kept on forgiving them. He kept on taking them back. He kept on restoring them when they cried out to him. See, God showed amazing grace towards Israel. He showed lavish generosity to Israel because it is in God's very nature to be gracious. It is in his nature to be generous. It's a question that recurs all the way through the Old Testament. Why does God stick by Israel when they keep messing up, when they keep rejecting him? Why does God go on showing grace to these ungrateful people? And the only answer God ever gives to that question is because he loves them. It doesn't seem a very complete answer, does it? We want to know more. But why do you love them? And God answers, because I love them. Just read to you from Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 8. God speaking to the people of Israel. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. See, God was gracious towards Israel because he loved Israel. What motivates God's grace? God's love motivates God's grace. God's love leads him to be gracious to his people. Neither Naomi nor Ruth deserved God's provision for them. We saw last week, Naomi harbored great bitterness towards God. And we mustn't forget that Ruth has spent most of her life worshipping other gods, not following the true God. No, Boaz's lavish generosity towards them both is a sign that God is gracious. And fast forward to today, and Christians can see in Boaz's treatment of Ruth a picture of Christ's love for the church. See, it becomes clear next week in chapter 3 of Ruth that Boaz's generosity towards Ruth is motivated by his love for Ruth. And it's the same for a Christian. We experience God's grace and forgiveness in Christ because of God's love for us in Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are a recipient of God's love demonstrated through Jesus. That is a love you did not earn, a love you don't deserve, but a love that is lavish in its generosity to us. See, just as Boaz went beyond the letter of the law in his care for Ruth, so God did not need to send his son into the world to rescue us. Instead, he chose to send his son into this world to rescue us because he loved us. 
See, just as Boaz chose to serve the widow Ruth with the food from his table, in spite of his, his wealth and his stature, so Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come into this world to be served, but to serve us, to give his life as a ransom for us. And Jesus invites us daily to bring our request before him. Prayer is Jesus inviting us to ask him to help us. Is Jesus almost putting himself at our service. It's a, it's a breathtaking thought. But this is the humble king that we serve. We do not deserve that. We are recipients of his grace. Just as Ruth is a recipient of Boaz's kindness. And just as Ruth ate all she wanted with Boaz and had plenty left over. So it is Jesus alone who can satisfy our longings to love and to be loved. He satisfies that in our relationship with him. And the Bible promises us there is plenty left over after that. See, it is a dangerous thing to talk about God's love or Jesus' love because we so easily become sentimental. But I want us to see that Jesus' love is not just sentimental. It is physical. Jesus' love is blood-stained. Jesus' love is demonstrated on a wooden cross. It is not just a warm glow that it gives to us. Jesus' love transforms the lives of his people. And it has achieved amazing things for us. See, Christ's love, demonstrated at the cross, has saved us from death, from condemnation, from hell, and it saved us for a new life, for a relationship with God as our Father, for the new creation and a home with God. See, Christ's love, the Bible tells us, is more passionate than the greatest love a husband can have for his wife. Ephesians 5 tells us that. And knowing that we are loved by Christ transforms our lives. The knowledge that Jesus loves me can liberate me from a tendency of seeking love in other things. It can free me from the idolatry of living for other things, whether that's for the love that someone else can give me, whether in my family or in a relationship, whether that's success, whether that's just a sense of my own achievements. Knowing that Jesus loves me and I am secure in that liberates me from that. Knowing that we're loved by Jesus enables us to take risks for him. We can risk offending someone by telling them about him because ultimately we are secure in Christ's love. And that is all that matters. And above all, knowing that we are loved by Christ and in a relationship with God through him, we are living our lives as God intended us to live them. God made us for himself. And through Jesus, he calls us into relationship with himself. Just as Boaz lavished these gifts on Ruth, so God longs to lavish great gifts on his children. His protection, he wants to give to us. No one can snatch us out of God's hand. We are secure. Not even death can take us away from God. God offers us his provision. He gives us his Holy Spirit to enable us to live for him. He gives us everything we need to live for him. We can trust in that, even when it feels like we could do with some extra. We can trust that God has given us everything we need. And God has given us his care. 
God says he is our shepherd. He leads us through this life. He will feed us. He will nurture us. And he will lead us home ultimately. He will protect us from evil. Even in the suffering that we will all face for Jesus. We can trust in God's care. I want to say maybe the most amazing thing about God's love and care for his people is that this is the big way that God demonstrates his glory to the universe. We might think that God doesn't need any help to demonstrate his glory. We might think we look at the sky at night, the stars, look at the beauty of creation, especially on a, on a summer's day. You might feel God, God receives glory from that. The, 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 the heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist tells us. But God thinks differently. God chooses to reveal his glory supremely in calling sinful, undeserving people like us into his family. God feels we can only grasp his glory when we see how much he was willing to give up for us that we could belong to him. God's grace is motivated by his love for us. That is not a sentimental love. It is not something that should puff us up with pride. It is something that should warm our hearts with joy. It is something that should lead us to thanksgiving and lead us to make sacrifices for this God because he will more than repay us for any cost we have incurred through faithfully living for him. God's grace is motivated by his love and to experience God's love is to finally have the longing in all of us satisfied and then with plenty left over. Let's just bow our heads and pray to this loving God now. Let's pray.